I'm just gonna run through those quickly. Um, so it's purpose, and so purpose is trying to figure out where in the big story of the Bible does something fall. And so when I say big story of the Bible, it can be easily broken up into four sections, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so our pastors actually just did a quick class on Christian story, so I'm not going to stop there because that's a whole four-week class that you could go to. Um, but that's kind of what you're going to do is try to place the book that you're studying into the bigger picture of what God is doing in the Bible. The next one is perspective. And perspective is trying to figure out the context of what you're reading. So sometimes when we come to the Bible, it's really, really easy to keep on our very American mindset of what the Bible is. And so we want to kind of try to take that hat off and try to put on what is the author and the audience of this book of the Bible. And so that's what we're doing in find, trying to find the context. And so I'll walk through that perspective with the book of Exodus in just a minute, but I just kind of ask some of those questions. The next one is patience, which kind of comes into that deep pool analogy, but Jen uses something in her book called the savings account versus debit account approach to God's word. And so I think sometimes we can approach God's word in a lot of different ways. They're not necessarily all bad, but we can come asking God's word to do something maybe that it wasn't designed to do. And so the correct approach kind of is to know that the Bible is a big story about God, not about us. And so sometimes we can come to the Bible and say, oh, I want it to say something about my life, which is great. It says a lot about my life, but it says more about God and who he is first. And then in return, it tells me about my life. Um, and so the savings account kind of debit account analogy is that we don't come to Bible. We don't come to the Bible and like swipe our debit card like we would for a cup of coffee or McDonald's, you know, whatever we might need. We come to the Bible and it's kind of one of those things where you're building a foundation for your knowledge of it. And so you're kind of storing away that for a time in your life when you might need it. And so that's kind of a better approach to thinking about scripture is that we, it might not, we might come to a passage, especially in Exodus, where we might not understand it. And we're like, what in the world? You know, and then we study it and we're like, okay, well, that doesn't really apply to this moment in my life. But wait about when down the road when I'm really struggling with, with this particular thing. And now I have this in my mind and it's ready for the Lord to pull out when I need it. Um, the next one is the process, and so if you flip over your bookmark, you can see the process, which is observation, interpretation, application. And so this is kind of a peek behind the curtain of what really we, me, Amy, and Emily have done in studying this. And so we are learners alongside you. We are just have learned it before you. And so just kind of know that as we're teaching, this is what we're using. Like this is how I studied the book of Exodus before coming here is that I went through and asked of it some of these observation questions, and then I asked the interpretation questions, and then I asked the application questions. Um, and so that's kind of just a helpful tool that you can use. Um, and so this is what you can also use during your personal study times, if this is helpful. There's lots of different questions on here. Sometimes I have enough time to go through all of them, very rarely. So I usually pick one or two that kind of stand out to me. And so you can use this to kind of help you prep for the next session. Um, and then the last one, I think it's funny that she puts this as last, but pray. Um, prayer is such an important part to studying scripture. We should pray before, during, after, at all times, without ceasing. Um, and so I think that's important because it is God who enlightens our hearts to the scripture, that he's the one that reveals the truth of his word. And so we have to come to scripture with an understanding that it is God who helps us. Um, 
And so that's kind of what the process is and how we'll go about kind of studying uh, this book of the Bible. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to point out, and we'll get to in just a second, is kind of um, the context of it. And so we'll start, actually, let's start with the beginning, the purpose of it. So if we're to jump into Exodus, where would you say that the book of Exodus is in the big story of the Bible? Here's a question. Sorry, that was kind of hard to start out. But <laughs> anybody want to throw an answer out there? If you had to put it in, if you're thinking about it in categories of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, where might Exodus be? If you get it wrong, it's totally fine. We're about to go over it. <laughs> so, Like as a whole or what we're Yeah, but just the whole book. Redemption. Yeah, exactly right. So we've seen creation, we've seen the fall. It happens really quickly, right? <laughs> so it happens very quickly, and then all of a sudden the whole book of the Bible is redemption, right? And then the end. But we see threads of all of those things in every story. And so that's kind of what we're going to pull out, is you kind of see the big narrative of Scripture, and then within books you'll see other kind of pieces of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Um and so now that we've kind of gone through purpose, let's move on to perspective. And so this is where we ask of the book of Exodus those kind of questions. Um, and so if we were to start with the first question, who wrote it? Um, we know based on scripture, scripture itself actually identifies who wrote the first five books. We call it the Pentateuch um, or the Torah, and that's the first five books of the law. And that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so in Acts 3.22 is where it identifies that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. And so we know that Moses is the author of Exodus, which is interesting because he's one of the main characters. But he speaks in third person. Interesting. So we'll get to that. Um, the next question is, when was it written? And so this is where there's a little bit of discrepancy about the book of Exodus. Um, and so... The book of Exodus really, it doesn't have a lot of proper nouns, like it doesn't identify who the Pharaoh is, or there's like three Pharaohs throughout it, or multiple Pharaohs throughout it, and it doesn't identify who those are, and so finding a date can be difficult. But the good thing is there's other dates in scripture that are known, and so historians typically will try to build a timeline of scripture based on other events that are recorded um, in history as well in the Bible. And so the two years that you can kind of see is 1446 BC or 1260 BC. Uh, 1446 um, is based, that number is kind of based off of a reference in First Kings, um, which says that it was 480 years and it kind of builds it around Solomon's fourth year in reign. Um, and so they kind of do the math. I'm not going to spend time doing the math for you right there, but you can read that in the study Bible. Um, and then the second date is 1260 BC, and they basically base that off of the fact that the Israelites built, there's two kind of cities that they built in Egypt, um, and you'll see that in the first couple of verses. Um, and so that was based off of the reign of Ramses II, and so the city Ramses is what they built, and so that's kind of a little bit of like a peek into the curtain of what scholars are doing with the date of Exodus. Um, the next question is to whom was it written? Um, and that would be the people of Israel and the future generations who would follow God and us, which are future generations who follow God. Um, and so that's who it is written to. What style it's written in. So the style of a book is super important because it can easily be misinterpreted if you don't understand how an author uses that type of writing. 
So historical narrative in um, the Bible, and I guess outside of the Bible, is um, it's basically telling history in a narrative way with a specific goal in mind. And so all of history is biased. There's a certain goal in trying to come through history. And so the authors of, well, Moses, the author of Exodus, has a point in how he's using the historical narrative. Um, and so we'll go through a little bit of how to read historical narrative um, in just a minute. Um, but why was it written? So the book of Exodus was written so that God could be remembered and worshipped. Not only as the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, could they look back at the book of Exodus and be remembered for who God is, but also for us, that we could look back and we could see that God is a God who is faithful to his covenant promises. And I love that our first song was great, is that faithfulness, because you will see God's faithfulness throughout the book of Exodus and throughout the whole Bible. Um, and so those are kind of our perspective questions. You can kind of jot those down, or you can also find those in your introduction to Exodus. Um, now I kind of want to zoom in on historical narrative just a little bit briefly. Um, so when it comes to historical narrative, some things to note. Um, one of the most helpful resources I've watched um, on this is if you know the Bible Project. They have um, six videos that they go through how to read historical narrative. Um, and it's almost like a key that kind of helps you like unlock how to interpret historical narrative. Um, and so they have six videos that glow on like plots, character, names, and they kind of go through each one. Uh, I'm just going to pull out a couple of things that I think are helpful for the book of Exodus. Um, so character development is super important. And so we'll see in the Bible in historical narrative with characters is that characters are typically very relatable. They have a side where it's like they have a good side and they have a bad side, you know? And so we see the kind of moral wrestle that all of us have, right? We have good choices, we have bad choices. And so I think the Bible does that in particular to juxtaposition it against Christ, who is always good. And so we'll see kind of that character development throughout the book. Um, and so the character development, authors also use that kind of development to help us um, understand their viewpoint of the world. Um, you also see in stories in the Bible, you see lots of facts, but very little detail to what is happening. And so kind of what I mean by that is you won't find typically like a lot of description about who the character is, like what they look like, how they feel, those kind of things. Um, but if they are included, they're super important. And so when you see like the woman of the word bookmark, she has some questions about like repeated phrases or things like that. When you see those kind of things, there should be like a light bulb that goes on. It's like, oh, interesting, that name was capitalized and it's a proper noun when none of the other names were listed. And so you kind of get into this, you're able to read it and be like, oh, that's interesting. Like that is something that we need to pay attention to. Um, and so we also see that there's not usually any um, moral commentary from the characters. So it's just kind of very like dry fact in how they like lay it out. And so I think some of that is to, it's a narrative, and so it's telling a story, and so it's not stopping to give us that internal wrestle. And so we have to kind of wrestle with what God is saying. So we don't always see straight out that God says this is right, or God said this is wrong. It's very much like we kind of have to figure out what God is doing, big picture. Um, so that's a little bit of historical narrative. What I would say is watch those videos. They're much better than me explaining it right there. So the videos are super, super helpful. Um, the next thing we'll kind of walk through is just some key themes that we'll see throughout the book of Exodus. Um, I'm going to try to pull these out in my session, and then I think you'll see them also in the other sessions. 
Um, and so the first one is God is a God who fulfills his covenant promises. God is a God of deliverance. God is a God who sees and acts. God is the creator of life. God uses broken people. And so we will see that as we walk through this book. Um, and so the next thing I want you to do before we head into Exodus is that I want you to pull out your timeline of the Bible in just at least so you can see it. Um, and we're going to kind of place Exodus on where we are in the redemption story. Um, so this is kind of me going back to purpose and kind of giving us a little bit more detail since we are studying the book of Exodus. Could you say the core things one more time? So yeah, oh, absolutely. I write down, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> No, I'm so glad you stopped me. I went through them very quickly. I was like, I want to write that. <laughs> I decided last minute that I wasn't going to do a PowerPoint because it didn't feel like me. So I was like, okay, i got to go with what feels good. So if you didn't ask a question, please do. Um, okay, the key themes are God is a God who fulfills his covenant promises. God is a God of deliverance. God is a God who sees and acts. God is the creator of life. God uses broken people. One more time. One more time. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. We're going to know these key themes. Yeah. <laughs> it's good because you'll see them repeated. God is a God who fulfills his covenant promises. God is a God of deliverance. God is a God who sees and acts. God is the creator of life. God uses broken people. Um, and so if we look at this timeline of the Bible, I'm going to sketch out a little bit of context for us so that when we jump into Exodus, we know where we are. So we have creation, and then we have the fall. Very quickly, um, God creates a world, and this this little timeline is from a resource called God's Big Picture, and he divides up the timeline of the Bible into different kingdoms. So you see the pattern of the kingdom, the parish kingdom, the promised kingdom, the partial kingdom, and it continues on. We're going to kind of hide out in this top portion um, since we are in the Old Testament. And so in Genesis, in the creation account, we see the pattern of the kingdom. And so the pattern of the kingdom is that God created humanity to be perfect and to be in his presence continually with a perfect relationship with him. Um, and so we see that pattern established in the Garden of Eden. And then in the fall, we see the perished kingdom, but that kingdom has now fallen because of our sin. Um, and so now that kingdom looks slightly different because of the fall. And then um, we get into the promised kingdom, and that is where we see the Abrahamic covenant. We see some of those things come to life. Um, and so even throughout the other, the parish kingdom, we see like glimpses of God's grace. And so in Genesis 3.15, it's the first time that we see mentioned the gospel. And so that just means that it was the first word that God spoke that said that he will crush the head of the serpent, meaning that he will redeem a people for himself. And so we'll kind of see that as that goes along. Um, and so really what I want to zoom in real quick is in Genesis where it talks about Abraham and the Abrahamic Covenant. So I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to read the Abrahamic Covenant for you. I can open my Bible. Um, it's in Genesis 15 um, verses, uh, we will start in verse 3. It says, And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old. Makes me think of the guys have a really funny song about it. <laughs> it goes in my head and I think it's like, Bring me a heifer. <laughs> so I can't read it without thinking of that song. So sorry, that's what was in my head right there. Um, sorry, we'll keep going. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against them. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down to the carcass, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot fire and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so some things that we need to pull out for our study of Exodus from the covenant with Abraham is that God promised that he would be a fruitful and his, that his nation would be, uh, can't, sorry, fruitful and multiply, and that he would be a great nation. And so we see that even from the Genesis account when the command was for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And that command was that so that God would be worshipped throughout the land, that he would have worshipers that would fill the earth, that they would be um, fruitful and multiply so that God might be worshipped. And so Abraham gets this call from God and a promise, that covenant promise, that he um, would be a great nation. And then we also see that um, he promises that they will be in slavery to a nation for 400 years. And so we see even here in the Abrahamic covenant that God is foreshadowing what will to come. He's telling of what will come in Exodus. Another key point in this passage is that we also see um, when Abraham was asleep and the sun had gone down, that we see... Um, that says, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So the animals were cut in half. It was a sacrifice. And there was a, um, there's lots of blood because it was a sacrifice, but it's the shedding of blood that pays for our sins. And so we see here that God himself was the one that made the covenant. He was the one that walked through the animals. That it was him that made the covenant. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't anything Moses could do, but it was that God walked through and made that covenant. And so I think another key piece that we'll see um, as we zoom into Exodus is also that um, God is says, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. 
feet, fire, hold that in your mind. Think about that as in the book of Exodus. Um, and so as we see the Abrahamic covenant, then we'll zoom on, and then we know the next big piece of this picture is Joseph. So what happens in the story of Joseph? Can anybody give just a brief kind of summary? That's some hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> you said you were going to do easy. I know, I know, I know. It's a hard, hard one. I can summarize too, but does anybody want to give like a couple key things of what happened in Joseph's story? His brothers hated him. They did. <laughs> had a really bad childhood. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he, was he was daddy's favorite. Yes, yes. <laughs> Got thrown in a pit. Yes. Sold into slavery. Yes, yes. Okay, so we know he had, at least from this, we know that he had a hard childhood and then he ended up in Egypt. But even in the story of Joseph, we see God's sovereignty bringing him into Egypt. And God places him as a key person in the land of Egypt. And Joseph is second in command to Pharaoh, and God uses him to save his people who were wasting away because of the famine. And so Joseph in Egypt is second in command. We have this superpower of Egypt and the ancient Near Eastern prosperous because of how God had positioned them. Then, as the book of Genesis ends, we see that Joseph has died in, in Egypt. And now we turn our pages to the book of Exodus. Um, so the very first, I'm not going to read because there's so many chapters. We don't have time to read all of them. So you're going to have to kind of follow along with me as I go section by section. So the first kind of couple of verses, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. As we study the book of Exodus, I want you to perk up your ears for Genesis language. It's right after the book of Genesis. It's like all of Genesis happens, and we turn the page, and Exodus continues. And so you'll hear repeats of the language from Genesis in Exodus. And so in this first part of the section, we see that the descendants of Jacob are in Egypt, and that they have multiplied, they've been fruitful, and God has blessed them. And so we see part of the Abrahamic covenant coming to life. We see that God is a covenant-keeping God. We see that he multiplied and grew them extremely strong. We see that Joseph has died, and so that whole generation has passed away, and a new generation has come, and yet they are still multiplying, and they are still filling um, around Egypt. Then it says, now there arose a new king over in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so when it says who did not know, he probably did not personally know Joseph. But it also means that he also didn't count what Joseph had done in Israel as something to be obeyed or respected. And so he was no longer thinking about what Joseph had done and what God had done through bringing the Israelites to Egypt. He ignored what Joseph um, had done. Well, really, God had done through Joseph in the land of Egypt. Um, and so then it said, it says, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. 
Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and saw, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so we see that all of a sudden, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, becomes afraid of the Israelites. He is afraid that they are multiplying themselves and that they might join with other nations to destroy Egypt. So you think about Egypt as the kind of superpower or a very prosperous nation in that kind of area. You can imagine as a king what it might look like for to look out and see that you might be destroyed if these people get it in their mind. Um, and so his heart, we see, becomes hardened to Israel. Um, we see that he says, come, let us deal shrewdly, which reminds me of the language in the Tower of Babel. They said, let us come and do, we're going to take it into our own hands, and we're going to do what God has not asked us to do, and we're going to do it our way. And so we see this kind of heart in Pharaoh beginning. Um, but, so he, that heart begins to happen in him, and he puts taskmasters over them, and they are now slaves, and they are oppressed. But what does verse 12 say? It says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. God's covenant promises always go forward, even amongst oppression. God always keeps his promises. And so we see that he's continuing to fulfill this covenant, even among the opposition of Pharaoh. And so then we come to the next part of the story, and it says that... Um, so we kind of see this pattern in this part of scripture where Pharaoh starts to harden his heart and then he oppresses them and then God multiplies them and then Pharaoh gets afraid again and so he tries to bring more oppression and so we see in the next kind of section where he talks to Hebrew midwives, midwives who um, are named by name. We'll get to that in just a second, but they are named by name. The Pharaoh isn't even named by name, so that should also perk up your ears that they are important to God's redemptive story. And so we see that he asked the Hebrew women, the midwives, that they should kill the sons of the Hebrews, that they should kill them or maybe just let them die. Um, you can think of how a midwife, what they do. You know, he they might be able to manipulate that so that they would die. And so Pharaoh's next request is that part of the Hebrews would die. But it says, the midwives feared God. Think about that for a moment. The superpower of that, that king, think of how high Pharaoh was. And they said, I do not serve Pharaoh, I serve God. They feared God, they feared God of the Israelites. And they obeyed him instead of obeying Pharaoh. And so the next section we see, that the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I don't know if that was true. <laughs> it could have been. I don't know. <laughs> so here's where we see a lack of moral commentary. We don't know. But what we do know is that God honored them for their obedience. They are named by name as women who 
have stood up to the Pharaoh, the king of the land, and said, I will not obey the king. I follow God. And so we will see that women are part of God's work, that God uses women throughout the Exodus and throughout the entire Bible, that they are key to the redemptive purpose um, of what God is doing. And so next, because the midwives did not obey Pharaoh, but they obeyed God, guess what happened? Anyone want to throw it out? If God's keeping his covenant promises, he used the midwives to keep them. What do you think happened? They multiplied. They multiplied. <laughs> that, that was an easy one, see? <laughs> um, they were fruitful and they multiplied again. And so God blessed them. Um, and here we kind of see some hints of Genesis language again, that with obedience comes blessing, with disobedience comes curse and death. And so we should even see that as we, the story is kind of pulling out, the Pharaoh is unnamed for his disobedience and his hardened heart, and the midwives are named and honored because of who they serve. And so we see that in the text. So then again, here we go. Pharaoh does it again, just like God will do it again. But Pharaoh says, commanded to all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so we see here that Pharaoh yet again tries to go against what God has asked. What's interesting about this little portion of scripture is it reminds me a lot of the birth story of Jesus. And so here we kind of see where we start to see Moses as a type of Christ, that he is now kind of his birth story and his, um, we'll see it kind of a little bit more in the text too. But I want to pause and I want to read a little bit of Jesus's birth story in Matthew 2. And so hang on with me, it's Matthew 2, um, 13 through 18 is where I'll read. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. And so this story of Pharaoh casting the male children into the Nile sounds very familiar to a king that we see in the New Testament, and that is Herod. He tried to kill Jesus, but they fled to Egypt. And then out of Egypt, Jesus was called. Um, and so we start to kind of see this liking of Moses. Um, and so we also see kind of that contrast of Pharaoh and Herod there. So now as we move on, um, we see, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And our ears should perk up to hear Levite. Um, so just as I said that Moses here it kind of turns a corner and becomes like a type of Christ, 
we see that the house of Levi, the tribe of Levi, was the ones that God identified as being the priestly clan of um, the Israelites, that they would be the mediators between God and man. And so when we see Levi here, we should perk up and say, interesting that Moses was born a Levi. Um, then it says that the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dowed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And so here we see that um, his mother saw had a child. It was Moses, big surprise. Um, and she, <laughs> thanks for laughing at my joke. Um, <laughs> and so she, I've got some sympathizers on her. Um, and so she builds a basket um, to put in to the water um, so that her son might be saved. And what's interesting about this basket is it's the same word for ark. And so we see this idea of God's redemption from even Noah's ark. Through the water, through the blood, there's lots of imagery happening in Exodus. And so we see that Moses is spared. She does obey Pharaoh to an extent and puts the basket in the Nile, but God provides salvation and um, rescue for Moses for a purpose that we will see. And so then we see later on in the passage, it says that Pharaoh's daughter was the one that came and found the child. I think it's very ironic that it's Pharaoh's daughter that provides redemption for the people of Israel, right? That's so ironic. Like, the Lord is so funny. Like, it's just crazy. Um, and so just to see that it was Pharaoh's daughter, um, and she identifies the baby as a Hebrew. We don't know whether that was because of physical characteristics, they looked different, or whether we think that's probably because of his circumcision. Um, as a Hebrew, that was part of the sign of God's people is that they would be circumcised. And so um, Pharaoh's daughter pulls him out of the water um, and we see that his sister is lingering there watching what would happen. So we think that it's probably because his mother could not bear to watch what might happen. You know, his sister's lingering. Can you imagine the pain that that mother might feel putting her child in the river to die? You know, that's what she thought. She thought. And yet she also trusted God by making the basket, making a way that he might be redeemed. And so um, we see the sister and she says um, they have this interaction. And what happens is Moses goes back with his mother and his nurse as a Hebrew, which is a really interesting piece because we'll see later in the story. Now Moses has a Hebrew upbringing. So he identifies with the Israelites. He knows God, or at least knows of God and of what the Hebrew God is. But then we'll also see that um, he will eventually go back to Pharaoh's daughter and get the Egyptian upbringing, which is a key piece to the story. And so at the end, we see that Pharaoh's daughter names Moses. And so we know from our reading of historical narrative that names are important. And so... It says, um, the Hebrew meaning, I drew him out of the water. And it's really interesting because the Egyptian meaning of this word, Moses, is son. I drew my son out of the water, which is an interesting connection even to I drew my son out of Egypt. And these themes of salvation that it's through the water and the blood and what Jesus is doing in redemption. So even the name of Moses alludes to the story that God is painting of his redemption. Um, 
And then we move on and we see that Moses has grown up. Um, and we don't know for sure how old he is. I think some approximations are about 40 at this time. Um, so now he has that Hebrew upbringing, but he now also has that Egyptian upbringing. And so we see that one day, Moses, when he had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating the Hebrew, one of his people. A key thing here is that Moses identifies with the Hebrew people. He doesn't identify as an Egyptian, but he identifies as a Hebrew. He calls them his people, and we kind of see the story turn where he starts to feel a responsibility for the Hebrew people. And so here we start to see, well, I mean, honestly, at his birth, and before that, we started to see God's redemption plan. But in particular, in Moses' life, what we're seeing is he's beginning by God's sovereignty to have the skills to be the deliverer of Egypt, to be the priest and deliverer of Egypt alongside God. And so um, it says that he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man who was in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And so here we see another kind of moral dilemma. God obviously doesn't condone killing or murder, but he also has said to be your brother's keeper. That Moses is a protector. Um, but the Hebrew, it's interesting, I think this is where we see a little bit of seed of doubt that is sown in Moses' heart, and so we'll see that doubt come up um, when God calls him, but someone questions him. He says, who made you prince and judge over us? Who, who did? And Moses at that point, right, he hasn't been called by God, and so he's like, well, no one, you know? And so I think that's when there's like a seed of doubt that comes into his mind. Um, and so then we see that Pharaoh finds out what Moses has done, that he has killed um, an Egyptian. So I think this is where we see that Pharaoh suddenly realizes that he no longer is loyal to the Egyptians, but he's loyal, loyal to the Hebrews. And what we know about Pharaoh is that he's scared of the Hebrews because he knows that they are fruitful and that they multiply and that they could be a great nation. Um, and so he seeks to kill Moses, and Moses flees. Um, and he stays in the land of Midian. It says he sat down by a well. And so this doesn't necessarily mean he literally sat down by a well. He probably did at some point in his life. But it means that he settled in the land of Midian. Um, <laughs> so just a key point there. Wells are great, but um, it is interesting that they use the word well because we do see multiple times in scripture this idea of wells. Um, it's typically where um, a wife is found. Um, she probably goes hang out at some wells sometimes. Um, all jokes aside. Um, but um, we also see that that's where um, Jesus met the Samaritan woman, and they talk about marriage, and they talk about that he is the living water. And so we see this idea of redemption even in um, the analogy of the well. And so... Now what happens in the story is that we kind of see Moses growing as a person too, kind of throughout this, this character development that we've been talking about. Um, and so here, Moses becomes a deliverer. We see that there is um, seven, seven daughters who came to the well to draw water um, and that, they, um, that there were shepherds that drove them away. 
Um, and so what happened was that Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And so when we think of shepherds, we think of a shepherd of Israel, someone who cares, protects the sheep. And instead, um, the shepherds were not doing that. And so Moses rose up to be their deliverer. And so we'll kind of see that throughout the story, that there's multiple like small stories of deliverance throughout this story. Um, and so then the seven daughters come home and they're like, this is great. We got her well done. And their dad is like, what? How are you home so fast? And so they tell him about the Egyptian, and um, Moses comes, and out of that interaction, he gets a wife, and they have a son, and they call him Gershom, and he said, for, he said, for I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so we see there also that names are important. He is a sojourner in a foreign land. And I think it's interesting, too, that the Israelites will be sojourners in a foreign land for a while. Um, then we kind of transition to the next stage of um, the storyline. Um, and it says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. So we have a change of leadership. The Pharaoh has changed. Um, and so it's no longer the Pharaoh who had hardened his heart, but it's a new Pharaoh. But the change of leadership does not bring deliverance for the Israelites. And it says, Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. Like, sorry. God knew. He sees your suffering. God knows us. He did not leave them to die in slavery. He could have. He didn't, because he's merciful, and he's a God who keeps his covenants. He saw their pain. Think about it. They've been in slavery for years. Years. Do you think they forgot about God? Yeah, they probably were like, where are you? That's how it feels in our suffering. Where are you, God? But he's right there. He keeps his covenants. Keeps his promises. And when it says, and God knew, it means he knew their suffering. He knew and that he was going to act. And so that's where we see a key theme of Exodus coming to be, that God sees and God acts. He is not passive. Then the next story transitions, and this is where I want to spend a lot of time. It's the call of Moses. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father, Jethro, just doing everyday stuff. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. What's interesting about this mountain is they also call it Sinai. Does anybody know what happened at the mountain of Sinai? Ten I think I heard some. I was like, I heard some murmurings. The Ten Commandments. The law of God was given at Mount Sinai. And we'll see that this mountain is important to the storyline and to the redemption of God's people. And here is where we really need to remember the Abrahamic covenant. Next verse says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So we need to pause here, and we need to figure out what this is. So this is actually a theophany, which is a big theological word, which just means that it is actually the presence of God that is here and active. Um, it's like we saw in the Abrahamic covenant. It's fire. Fire throughout scripture, 
we see that it's God's presence. We see later on in the book of Exodus that God leads his people by a pillar of fire. And then we also see in Acts that the church is built, that just like we are learning that the nation of Israel is being built, um, just like that in Acts, that the anointing of the church through the tongues of fire is also known for the presence of God. And so this is really important to understand that it is a theophany. We are seeing God himself. Moses has now come into the presence of God and we're starting to see his, him as a mediator, just like Christ is our mediator between God and man. And so here he is looking at this burning bush, seeing that it is not being consumed. That's also a really important fact about this. It's to demonstrate that God is self-existent. He does not need anything or anyone. It's not being consumed. He doesn't need anything to be. He is God. And so we'll see that as he identifies himself later on. And so it says, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see the great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. I think this is really interesting. Because it reminds me a lot. I mean, Moses' natural thing was to turn aside from God, probably because of his holiness. Actually, I know because of his holiness, because <laughs> we're going to read it. But he turns aside from him because he's fearful. But what does God do? He says, Moses, Moses, come, come to me. And that's crazy because that's what happens in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. God calls to them. God wants us to have a relationship with him. God wants to be known. God wants us to know him and love him for who he is and to be known by him. And then Moses says, here I am, which is also a phrase that we hear throughout the Bible in Isaiah and others. Here I am, send me. Then it says, do not come near. Interesting. God says, come. Whoa. Don't come near. And so here we really see God's holiness, that God had made this ground holy. Um, it says that God asked Moses to take the sandals off of his feet. We don't have time to really dive deep into that, but that's also a crazy thing. Um, but basically the main point is that God has made this ground holy. God is the one that makes things holy. We don't make things holy. God makes things holy. And he invites us into them, but there has to be a price paid for us to be close to God. Um, and then it says, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What's important about this is God is identifying himself. Think about the religions of the world during that time. They believed they were polytheistic. There was lots of different gods that they worshipped in Egypt. We'll see that very distinctly in the plague. And so God is identifying himself here as I am one God, the father of the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so we'll see as we go through this call of Moses that God continues to identify himself more clearly. We'll see that not only in these calls, but in further on in Exodus, we'll see that God continues to reveal and identify himself with his people. And Moses's reaction is what all of our reactions should be. We should hide our face from God because he is holy. But God always makes a way that we can get close. And we'll see that in the next verse. Um, then it says, the Lord said, 
and he says his mission. He says, Moses, I have seen the sufferings of Israel, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Let me pause here. It says, and I have come down. That is so important. God, sorry, keep going. God in his holiness comes down to us. He might be holy and separate, but he loves us and he comes down. Where else do we see that God comes down? So many places in scripture. But think about Philippians 2 and what Christ did on our behalf. He did not count the form of God as something we grasp, but he put that away that we might know him. He humbled himself to the point of death so that we might know him. And then we see in Revelation 21 that God brings heaven down. He doesn't bring us up. He brings heaven down. He comes down into our suffering. He identifies with us that we might know him, even in his holiness, in his set-apartness. That is the gospel, that we might know him. A holy and transcendent God would do that for us. Don't miss that. And then it says, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And here we see Moses' first question. We'll see Moses question God. Some are right, some are wrong. We'll find out. This first one, pretty legitimate, I think. Um, he says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I would be asking the same question. I wrestled with this text all week, and I was like, I hate talking in front of people, but I love scripture. How the heck am I going to talk? <laughs> so I feel like I, this is very personal to me. But it says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? I think that's an interesting question because if we look back at his life, if we look back at what God is doing, God has trained him up as a Hebrew and an Egyptian. Who else is there that knows an Egyptian and a Hebrew? He knows the culture of both. Then God saves him through the ark of the little basket, through the water. Like, who else is there? Like, God's been working. Like, there's no one else. It's got to be you. And God's response is so gracious. He says, but I will be with you. That's our promise. That God is with us. That he might call us to do some hard things, but God is with us. Um, and then he gives him a promise. He says, you will bring out the people of Egypt, and you shall serve God on this mountain. He's standing on the mountain of God, the Sinai mountain. What is to come? God promises what is going to come in Sinai and the Ten Commandments and so much more. So then the story continues, and Moses asks the question again. So God has already promised that he'll be with him. But he still has some questions, which I do as well. So then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So think about this. Moses has been removed from Egypt. This is kind of a legitimate question. If he were to go back to the Israelites, just like that original question that that Hebrew asked him, Who makes you prince and judge over us? Like, what is he going to say? He knows that he's going to get questioned when he gets back. So what is he going to say? And this is what God says. He says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I don't have to, time to go into kind of the Hebrew word and what that kind of means, but what God is, he's identifying himself as God, and he's identifying himself as unique apart from all other gods. He's identifying himself as I am the same God of Adam and Eve. I'm the same God of Jacob. I'm the same God that has always been and will always be and will always keep my covenant promises. God is the same God and that his character never changes, ever. It never changes. That he is to be remembered as the God who is omniscient, who is sovereign, who is unique, who is transcendent, who is holy, but also near because he's talking to Moses and he intercedes on our behalf. And so God identifies himself. Then he says, go and gather um, the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt that I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hezrites, Hittites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we see that same kind of thing that God is bringing redemption. And it says, here's the first kind of like promise, second promise really. He says, Mount, you will serve me on this mountain. And then we see this one where it says that the elders of Israel will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt. And so here we see that the Lord is also saying that when Moses goes to the elders of Israel, they will listen. Um, then, sorry, I lost my place. Hang on just a second. Okay, and then it says, And you will say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Which is interesting because God's been saying, I will deliver them out of Egypt. He didn't say, I'm going to go sacrifice them and deliver them out of Egypt. And so I think what's happening here is it's a little bit of a bargaining tool. If you ever talk to a child, Jen Wilkin pulls this out in kind of her session. But if you ever talk to a child, they're like, if they want like five pieces of candy, they're going to start with like one. Hey, hey can I have one? How about two? They're going to push it. And so we kind of see that that's what's happening is that they are trying to start small. It's like an ancient Near Eastern bargaining tactic. They're starting small, but that's not the real ask. The real ask is coming later. Then here's another foreshadowing of what will happen. God says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so it says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. So here we see that God is telling Moses that he might go talk to Egypt and the prince of Egypt. And the prince of Egypt is going to yet again harden his heart. And that God is going to have to come with a mighty hand before they actually come out. And that's kind of foreshadowing to what we'll hear in the plagues tomorrow. And so um, then it says... I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is interesting. I want you to remember this for session three. 
Um, I know that's a long time away, but keep that in there. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go too far into it, but it is interesting. I will point out that it is not the plundering that comes from an army, but it's the plundering that comes from God. That it's a soft and easy plundering that they have to do, right? All they have to do is ask their neighbor and the Egyptians were in sight. Uh, the Egyptians found favor. Sorry, I can't speak. Um, says, let me just read it instead. It says, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So the Egyptians willingly gave their things to the Hebrews because God was made great in Egypt. So then, here we go, Moses. He asks another question. Well, this one is less like a question and more like a, hmm, interesting. Um, he says, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So here comes Moses again. He said, but they will not believe me. So he knows God has promised that the elders of Israel will believe him. But God didn't say, he said that the Egyptians will need to be handled with a heavy hand from God. Um, So he's legitimately saying, okay, well, you just said they won't believe me. And so God graciously gives him three signs. The first sign is the staff that turns into the serpent. The second sign is that Moses reaches his hand in and it comes out leprous. And the, se- and the third one is the Nile River water turning to blood. This is also a foreshadowing of what God will do in the plagues. He's giving Moses the signs of the extent to which God will plunder the Egyptians. So the first one is the creatures of the earth, right? It turns into a snake. That's a foreshadowing of the first couple plagues where there will be frogs, flies, livestock dying. So we see this foreshadowing of what God will do. What's interesting here is the staff is a snake, and we know that one of the Egyptian god is a snake, and the snake will eat the other snake to show that God is above the Egyptian gods. And so in session two, we'll really hit on the plagues and we'll hear how each of the plagues are God demonstrating his power over the Egyptian gods. And so the second one is the people to show that the people will now have diseases through the plagues. They will have boils. The third one is to show that blood, as we've seen through Exodus, it's the life blood. When something bleeds, it has died. And so it's to show that God has power over death and life and that he will bring death to Pharaoh like Pharaoh brought death to his people. And so those are the three signs that Moses will perform. And then, as if the signs weren't enough, here comes Moses yet again. It says, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. I am slow of speech and tongue. What is the Lord's answer to that? He says, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, the creator of all things? This reminds me so much of the words that God speaks to Job. Job is questioning God, not necessarily in a bad way, but he's questioning God for the suffering that has been brought. And he says, God says, I am the creator. I am. I am. That's what God is identifying himself as. He's saying, I am God. You are not the one who makes mouse or makes someone deaf 
are mute. I am God who brings life. And then, what does he say? It says, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God says, I will go with you. I will teach you. I will hold your hand. If you're worried, I will go with you. But, <laughs> Moses, <laughs> that's me. I would do this. I do this. <laughs> but he says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> Please send someone else. Are you kidding me? Moses, have you seen your life? Like, have you seen it? You literally got to see the face of God in the burning bush. Like, he's seen God. He's talked to God face to face. He's been exchanging back and forth. And he's like, Please, no. Please, no. And only then was the anger of the Lord kindled. Look at God's patience. Moses goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And God provides an answer and strength for each one. And then his anger is kindled against Moses. Well, how does he respond? Is it a lightning bolt that says, you're done, next person? No. What he does is he says, fine, I will provide a mouthpiece if you won't be it. And so he provides Aaron, his brother, and it says, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad of heart. We'll see that's another promise, that God says that Aaron will be with you and that he'll be happy to do it. <laughs> Interesting, because Moses is very happy. Um, and so we see that Aaron will meet him, and this verse cracks me up, because it says, You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and we'll teach you both what to do. <laughs> So they can't defend themselves. 
But I think what we can see from this whole story and what we'll see later on in sessions is that um, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is we see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He has a heart that is hard towards Israelites. We see that in the first Pharaoh, we see it in the second Pharaoh, and we see it this Pharaoh. I think there's only two now that I say that out loud, but I need to go back and check. <laughs> but all that to say, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And so I think what's helpful to think about in Romans 1, it talks about how God gives us over to the lust of our passions. And so sometimes it's easy to think about God's judgment as being like this lightning bolt, but really God's judgment is him giving us over to his natural consequences. And we'll see that that's kind of how Pharaoh's heart is hardened, is that God allows the natural consequences of his sin to play out. And so when you have a hard heart, it gets harder. When you have a soft heart, it gets softer. That's how we see scripture work. And so that's the tiny little words. I'm put it back in and keep going. Then it says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, go behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here we see God identifying Israel as his firstborn son. That's super important as we go into the third session, that this is the birth of a nation. This is the birth of God's people, that God is identifying them as his firstborn son. And then he says to Pharaoh, if you refuse to let my son go, then I will take your firstborn. And we know that that's what happens in the tenth plague. So, my favorite part of this whole scripture is coming up next. <laughs> and but why I mean that is that this is the top four confusing scriptures um, of the whole Bible <laughs> that we get to. Um, and it's about the bridegroom of blood. This is very confusing, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Um, I'm going to read it, and we're going to talk a little bit about it, and I'm going to try to pull out just some main things to keep going. So, brace yourself. Here we go. It says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. Who was him? Mm. And sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are the bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. This is just crazy. Okay, so before I dive into this, I think we need to define what circumcision is. And so, I don't worry, I won't go into the physical characteristics of circumcision, but I will go into the spiritual components of it. So, if we go back to Jesus, <laughs> nothing like women's Bible <laughs> talking about circumcision. <laughs> no graphics, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why I ditched my PowerPoint. <laughs> so we need to go back to Genesis. We see the Abrahamic covenant, but then we also see that it's followed with the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. The sign that the males would get that says we are part of God's people. And so circumcision um, also is kind of like our baptism. We are saying we are part of of God's people. So it's an identification piece with God's people. And so I think in this story, what's important to note is that 
Um, it is through the shedding of the blood that Moses is spared. And so that's a main point here. And so we don't actually know what the words bridegroom of blood exactly mean. Um, and so that's something that's kind of just like a little bit puzzling. It's really the only place that we see those words. Um, and so I think what we need to take from this is that we see God's holiness and we see God's redemption. And so we see that Moses was in direct disobedience. He knew the Abrahamic covenant. He knew what God had done there. And he knew that his son should be circumcised, but he was not. And so somehow I think, well, if the most natural reading, it doesn't really specify whether it was Moses or whether it was his son, but the most natural reading is that it was Moses that his life, it was Moses's life that the Lord sought. And so apparently this conversation had been happening because Zipporah knew exactly what to do. I don't know why or how, but like they must have talked about that because she knew exactly what to do in order to save Moses's life. And that was to be obedient to God's covenant. Um, and so it was through her quick acting and her shedding of blood through the sign of circumcision that now Moses could go as the people of God to Egypt. So that's my best. There's lots of probably right. other things that we could talk about, but those are like the main things is that Moses was disobedient. God requires obedience. That Zipporah was used as a deliverer and that there was shedding of blood for that disobedience. So then we come to the ending of my portion before we go into the next session. Um, and it says, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. So there we go. That's part of God's covenant coming to be. What God says comes to life. Aaron was happy and kissed him. They greeted and he was ready to be ready to go for the task. It says, and Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord um, had said, which he had sent to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. That's what God said. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. What we see here is the pattern of the Christian life, the pattern of redemption. That it's through hearing God's word, believing that word, and then us worshiping, and that's what produces action. So someone hears God's word, they believe God's word, they worship God, and that's what produces action and obedience to God's word. And so we'll see that even, we've seen it already, that God does that, but then we'll see that in the further story too. That it's a hearing, belief, worship action um and so just to kind of wrap up this whole section i wanted to go back to our key themes and i wanted to bring out why we can trust god and why and how they kind of apply to our life so those key themes that we spent some time on in the beginning says through this kind of whole passage we see god is a god who fulfills his covenant promises therefore I can be trusted. God is a God of deliverance, therefore I can have hope. God is a God who sees, therefore I know I am not alone. God is a creator, therefore in him I know I have life. God is a God who uses broken people, therefore I know God can use me. 